Yeah. yeah. I know this is going to be hard to believe, but everyone should know that there's absolutely no moment like this moment right now. Murphy stated his law, but he did not describe the gremlins. Murphy's gremlins live all around us, in the computer, the water heater, the floor drains, and the traffic lights. These gremlins are able to measure how important our machinery is to us. They are able to calculate when a breakdown will be most inconvenient for us. They know just when things should go wrong, to make each day as stressful as possible. They love nothing more than to cause the greatest inconvenience for the greatest number of people. I'm not a Welcome back to another episode of the Humor and the Abject podcast, You Not a Witch, Not Post Internet, Not Ever Satisfied with Your Creative Output in Terms of Your Own Metrics of Success, Screedlers. This is Stefan Lee, the podcast studio manager. On this week's episode, we have a very special treat for you. Joining via extremely online video hangout all the way from Chicago, Illinois, we have a special boy that you may recognize from his days messing up the World Wide Web as part of Paper Rad. Or from his wild and elegant kind of metal band Extreme Animals. Who are Extreme Animals, you ask? Why? We are listening to them right now. Or maybe you know him from his solo work? I'm speaking, of course, about Jacob Giacchi. He's not a millennial. Not yet a Gen Xer. Bruppeting wah. Bruppeting wah. If you make art on the web, Jacob is a sort of demigod. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Myra Glass, welcome to Jackass. It's episode 98 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. I am so amped up on this week's episode, Screedlers. I've got one of my absolute favorite artists, Jacob Chiachi, coming up for you in just a minute here. And you're going to be hearing a lot of Jacob's band with David Whiteman, Extreme Animals, throughout the episode today. 
the bulk of the intro was Extreme Animals. This background music is Extreme Animals. The outro music is going to be Extreme Animals. There are Extreme Animals songs playing in the background throughout the interview because they've got new material coming out very soon and I couldn't be happier. Back in 2014, I got the chance to interview Jacob and David right before they put out a DVD called The Urgency. Was the article that was ultimately published good writing? Probably not, but I was still honored to get to have bagels with them one morning and talk about their project and then see them later at the Silent Barn at the release party. Now, as Staffanly mentioned, Jacob was also a member of everybody's favorite weirdo internet and IRL artist collective Paper Rad, whose aesthetics and conceptual influences have worked their way into just about everybody's art practice that I like these days. Jacob and his partner literally had their first baby last week, so I can't express how grateful I am that he still managed to schedule some time for Human the Abject. The interview covers the origin story of Paper Rad, the formation of extreme animals, and a whole lot of armchair internet art history. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please consider supporting Humor in the Abject on Patreon for just three bucks a month if you like what I put out into the world. That's plenty from me. Here's my conversation with Jacob Chiachi. Jacob Chiachi, welcome to Humor and the Abject. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, we're connecting here following a major life event for you. Do you want to share the news with the listeners? Uh, me and my partner, Ruthie, just had a kid. Woo! Uh, Wilbur, Wilbur James Chiachi. So. Wilbur? Three weeks ago. Oh yeah. my god, that's amazing. How many stars out of five would you give being a dad so far? <laughs> Um, you have to say five. Yeah. There's good. no other, there's no other answer. Um, <laughs> and it's not even like you have to, because you'll be shamed if you don't. It's just like, it's such an intense thing that I can't, it's a five know. out of five. Yeah. It's a five out of five default. Yeah. It's like, there's a lot going on. S- yeah. Simply because of what it is, it's five out of five. Yeah. Has life changed radically just immediately? It, yes and no. I mean, it, it, there's like some things that are totally the same and it, and it for me it hasn't been as like night and day as other people have described uh-huh. there is a lot of like oh that thing that i used to worry about i don't care about it at all anymore or at least currently you sure, know Sure, yeah i'm sure There's the like, priorities shift perspective yeah shifts. the priorities shift perse- perspective shifts i mean my sleep was already like a total pretty messed up and so this is just a continuation of that for me mm-hmm. it's not really that much worse in terms like i think that's one of the things that everybody talks about is sleep their patterns get all messed up yeah but you were already you came into it messed up so yeah and i'm (laughs) gonna leave it messed up too um well so you're in chicago right now right yeah totally okay and so that's uh you've got a faculty gig you're at depaul um and you and amy lockhart are co-chairing an mfa program there but what are you teaching animation mostly um it's an animation program within a digital media department um and amy was hired first about like i don't know four or five years ago Uh and she was teaching you know character animation as well as experimental and getting into the grad stuff which is more like history of animation history of avant-garde cinema and then that's kind of what i've been doing too i'm not teaching character animation i'm teaching well a production class which is really anything goes Hmm. sort of and then a bunch of classes that are sort of straddling this set of ideas around avant-garde experimental animation video moving image film installation history as well as seminar kind of yeah yeah vibes for for undergrads and grads yeah yeah so it's actually really really fun and, and exciting because i got a little burned out teaching in an art liberal arts context uh-huh. i think because this is just feeling really refreshing to be teaching students that are much more industry job oriented are you liking chicago yeah totally Chicago is great. It's like, feels really, um, I don't know, substantial, you know, like, (laughs) (laughs) like, I like that. Yeah. It does feel substantial. It's, it's big. It's big. There's a lot happening. There's a lot of artists here. Most of them are teachers. So it's kind of like joining this giant workforce in a way that I'm not sure a lot of other cities have, you know? Yeah. I mean, New York and LA probably has it, but Mm. Chicago might be the only city besides those two that has this massive amount of professors that are like, you know, some of them are doing adjunct at multiple places. Others are working just at one place, but there's just a lot of us. There's like, 
I don't know. We could do a we could do a parade. <laughs> you have one, yeah. There's enough. There's enough art teachers for a parade. <laughs> well, before DePaul, you were at um, you were at Oberlin for a little bit doing like a visiting faculty gig, and I think I, yeah, you, you taught at like CUNY, Staten Island, and Carnegie Mellon. Um, yep. Is your relationship to teaching, is it just kind of like a practical day job? I know it is for some people and they have this really distinct practice or is there, right, right. or do you have it, is it intrinsically linked in like the kind of output that you make? Do you think of teaching as a creative effort or more of kind of just yeah. a, a way to pay the bills? I think it's, it can be both depending on my mindset and my energy level or my, what that day is. <laughs> my, yeah, my focus. Like sometimes it feels like a day job. Sometimes it feels like babysitting. Uh, <laughs> other times it really does feel like, Oh, this is what I, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is totally integrated with my worldview, yeah, yeah, or yeah. a calling or whatever. You know, my experience at DePaul has been nice in that I feel like, you know, when you're, when you're making art, when you're being creative, you're trying to mold something that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. You're trying to make something happen that hasn't happened yet. And, and you're, you're trying to shape it out of nothing. Basically. Mm -hmm. I felt that when I was doing critique based sort of art world based critiques at Carnegie Mellon or Oberlin, that sometimes I was really just like allowing for people to have good conversations with each other. At DePaul, on the other hand, I feel like I am molding in a way more because there's much more specific parameters on what I'm actually trying to teach, which is like, I'm not going to say practical, but it's more like narrow in scope. It's like, first of all, the medium is defined yeah. as animation. So right there you have like, okay, I'm doing an, I'm teaching animation. Right. That's, that's helpful and kind of feeling like you can actually make progress as a professor or you can see progress in your students because there's limits on the amount of range of what is possible, you know, like when I would teach at CMU or Oberlin, it would be like kids would walk in with like, you know, a plastic bag, <laughs> <laughs> drop yeah, it on yeah, the yeah, floor yeah. and like <laughs> pee on it. And then it's like, you have to talk about that yeah, yeah, and yeah. animation <laughs> in the same class. So no, it, it, it felt, yeah. Well, you felt hard. you're operating within like their metrics by which to measure the quality of right. something that's a little bit different in a highly theoretical, more kind of yeah. abstract thing. But uh, yeah, I can definitely see the the advantage for that, especially in, in maybe it's not practical skills, but actionable yeah. skills or like measurable or just, skills. Yeah, measurable <laughs> is the right word. And and so that's closer to what it's like being an artist, because when you're making stuff, you're developing these little measurable skills in your head for what success is or yeah. for what is working and not working. Whereas if you're just walking in with a group of students and you're having all these amazing, great theoretical conversations, yes, that is cool. Uh, but it's further, it's further for me from my own practice. So in a way I do feel like teaching at DePaul is closer to an art practice than it is, than it was teaching at Oberlin or CMU. But I, you know, this, it changes every day, like I said, and, in like six months, I could be like, oh my God, I, you know, <laughs> teaching is turned into the worst thing in the world. Yeah, and then you can just be I'm, a stay-at-home dad. Stay-at-home dad. You've got a backup plan now. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the <laughs> listeners to the podcast will probably have been first exposed to you through your work with uh, PaperRad. Yep. And recently, Rhizome uh, included PaperRad's website, which was like 2001 to 2008, yep. in their net art anthology, at least in the digital exhibition. I don't know. Was it in the book, too? I know they made a publication. I think it's a, yeah, I think it's in the book. Excerpts of something are in the book. Yeah. And now the information is definitely out there for anybody who's listening, and it's documented pretty nicely in this interview that you did with Rhizome back in August with Lauren Studebaker that's called An yep. Oasis, A Utopia, and a Nightmare. Um, but I was hoping that you might... <laughs> <laughs> which I think is a quip from a statement that you said in the interview, but I was hoping yeah. that you might give um, just kind of like the elevator pitch story of paper rad, how it came to be, who was part of it and uh, what you all were producing. Yeah. Uh, it came out of Boston, um, started in Boston. Uh, ben Jones and Christopher Forges were making a set of free zines every week. Uh, we were all in our early twenties or just out, even still in or just out of undergrad. Uh, and the zines were mostly, well, they had comics, but they were also pretty out there weird. I think Ben is quoted as saying that he was inspired by Petty, Raymond Pettibone or 
destroy all monsters, Mike Kelly, stuff like that. So yeah, they weren't really narrative or text story based yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. They, they came out of, they were art school, you know, like media department, art school informed. And then me and my sister joined in to this group of people that had already had tons of energy behind it, you know, cause it was Boston and Providence and Western mass. There was just a lot of people making both experimental or weird music and comics and I don't know, all that stuff. So it started there. And then I think what made Paper Rad different from Paper Radio. Which was the zine that they were making. Yeah, was that we started to make a website. And me and Ben both, Jessica as well, I think we all learned the basics of HTML in college and then just, you know, started getting into that. And I'd, I'd, I'd gotten into early internet art stuff at Oberlin where I went to undergrad with Corey Archangel and Paul B. Davis and some other people there. And uh, so there was this interest in like early media art. Well, what is seen as early now at the time it was like Mm. late media art, but early internet art combined with zines and this sort of more ephemeral, but yet real world stuff like noise shows and DIY venues. So what ended up paper ad ended up being kind of like a, a collective that embraced the digital, but also still worked uh, with older media as well, um, including videos. Eventually, we got into animation, and we were using Flash uh, with Macromedia Flash, now Adobe Animate, to make things. And I think Ben had already developed an aesthetic using that software, and me and Jessica just kind of jumped in and were influenced by that and pushed it to our own places. Yeah, it's still it's still the way I use Animate. It's still the way I use that software, and it's. Honestly, the way I I teach (laughs) animation is sort of from within this really, really raw rudimentary method that Ben developed. Yeah. Well, you just mentioned the aesthetic of, uh, well, Ben's aesthetic and paper ad, how that kind of influenced what you're doing now. And I think that paper ad's aesthetic was, you know, for lack of a better term, it was pretty punk. Um, It was clearly Mm -hmm. indebted to zine and collective culture, but it looked really really different uh than the broader punk aesthetic at the time um yeah. namely it was colorful yeah and was uh yeah. was there any conscious effort to kind of upend that sort of masculine new england punk rock iconography or was it simply right, just right. what you all you all were just a little bit more playful than the than the hardcore kids <laughs> i think even at oberlin i was yeah there was like a a turn away from the angry and into like a innocent younger thing like proto twee something yeah and then (laughs) it's like innocent was a i don't know there was something about like naive being an outsider or being naive that was appealing to maybe Mm -hmm. as a result of having to read critical theory all the time you're like yeah uh, you know what i just want to like doodle you know in the same way that i doodled when i was five without this like voice telling you that you're a bad person all the day, all yeah, time, yeah. all the time. Interrogating every step of what you're doing. Yeah, I and... think it was, I think there was some of that, you know, like reaction against that. Yeah. Maybe that was a part of it. But then but when we moved to Boston, there was this artist, Joe Grillo, who was in Paper Red for a, a little bit with two other artists. And they went on to form Dear Raindrop later. Uh, Joe Grillo, Billy Grant and Laura Grant. And they were all working within this really bright psychedelic color palette Mm -hmm. but in particular joe was you know beginning to incorporate like in his collages as well as his drawings like iconography from children's media from the last 30 to 40 years yeah and i think that that coalesced i suppose with what me and jessica were interested in and ben ben was at the time like a lot of his narratives were like these pretty innocent sort of uh innocence not the right word i don't know what another way to put it is sincere maybe narrative like new okay. new age narratives about a group of like small kids almost it seemed like you know like living in a clubhouse doing stuff together yeah like fun fact would be that that sort of model was directly copied by matt fury when he made oh my god what is the name of the, the comic from? boys club or something Someone's or? losing their mind yeah yeah something like that but so <laughs> I would say, and I think Matt actually goes on record as saying that that was a direct kind of copy of this world that Ben had created for his characters, Alfe and Horace and Roba, which all kind of had this sort of innocent kids living in the clubhouse, little out of control thing to it. So I don't know, going off on a bunch of tangents here, but answering your question, I think it was like in the air of just sort of like trying to kind of create a new iconography that 
was still sort of DIY, but it was, but was not cynical and was not about being uh, cool or political in this, in the way that it, that we'd grown up associating with DIY punk. Those punk communities have their own kind of uh, impositions on people who are being creative as much as an art school that if you're exposed to critical theory and things, you start to assume that this or that isn't valid to use because of these kind of arguments or something. Right. The same thing can go for punk. Yeah. Like it's really lame if you do this thing or like it's not yeah. punk enough if you do it this way. And so I, it seems counterintuitive, but those are weirdly, this this makes sense because they're, they weirdly have their own kind of structural rules that it's kind of a, it's like a no, no. Yeah. To, and the other, to the other thing them. I like two memories from Oberlin I have was one was like walking in, maybe sophomore year to the like registration of classes day and looking over and seeing Paul B. Davis, who was in beige records with Corey wearing jam. Like, do you remember jams? Those shorts? Yeah. Long. Sh- yeah. Longish. They were like border longish, shorts, right? like really colorful shorts with yeah. like a Metallica shirt. And at the time there was nothing cool about that combination. <laughs> and, and yet he was somebody that was clearly like he knew, what all of the cool things were that were happening at the time, subculturally speaking. And he, and yet he was still choosing to kind of embrace what I guess I would call is like this sort of nerdy, Mm. like fanny packs were probably involved. You know what I mean? Like sweatpants. So that was like one memory. And the other memory was just how into like nerd culture, Corey Archangel and Paul Davis were at the time, meaning they like fully, Everybody else was like, you know what? Computers aren't cool. Like we like analog film. We like analog video. We like retro technology. We like Uh analog synthesizers. And Corey and Paul were like super into computers and they took elements of, of that and made it cool. So this sort of embrace of nerdiness and, and a sort of an embrace of like whatever it was we grew up with, which was in a way a combination of computer culture and like He-Man or, you know, D&D or all these other things. Because we all grew up with desktop computers, like PCs, like early, mm. either an early Mac or a, or a, a PC that... Like a gateway? Yeah, maybe even pre-gateway. <laughs> um, yeah, like a, you know, Atari or C64. Um, mm-hmm. I never had either of those. Our first computer was a PC. It was like a IBM. Yeah. But yeah, me and my sister made art on it a lot of art and we don't have any of it but i'm sure it looked a lot like paper ad it was the (laughs) same exact mental space of like okay here's this really dumb piece of software that i'm just going to make something equally as dumb on the thing i'm going to make on it is as dumb as the software itself and yet there's going to be some kind of like heart to it that's going to be that people can relate to i used to really earnestly draw yeah. Well, draws a, a funny way to put it, but I used to move the mouse around make in Microsoft paint. I would make like snowboarders doing sick grabs. Yeah. And stuff. That's, uh, and I was like really into it and I would like spend hours doing little pixel by yeah. pixel to put like flames on the bottom of their snowboards yeah, and stuff. Like I really, I really spent a lot of time on it. I mean, I'm sure they looked whack. Well, I'm sure they look amazing. I really care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they'd probably be fine now. Yeah. yeah. Like all of that art is lost at least it is for me and my sister and i think probably unless you you or your parents are like digital archivists no, yeah. <laughs> i don't know how we would access that yeah well i wanted to ask too you jessica and ben were mining you know all kinds of odd places too to collect moving image material for paper ad videos yeah um oftentimes like vhs to vhs transfers mm-hmm. from original source material that you're getting in thrift shops or other kind of dusty corners of culture i guess yep. but what was the advent of youtube like for you all was that an existential crisis in a way i mean when this stuff yeah i, I mean i guess 2006 youtube wasn't so so web 2.0 so um, i would say but... the answer to your question is that everything is terrible was the the youtube account that for me changed radically the way i thought about what i was doing uh with found footage for those that don't know everything is terrible as a collective that also finds and remixes mostly vhs tapes um from thrift stores and they just kind of in my opinion cornered the market as well as figured out a way to do it that was even more sort of palatable to a wide audience. Mm. For me then found footage took on a completely different role in my art. So pre everything is terrible. It was about exposing things to people that hadn't seen it. So like, Hey, 
I collected this. I'm showing it to you. Here's a great clip I found. Mm-hmm. Everything is Terrible did that, but much better. So after Everything is Terrible, I started to think of found footage as instead just something that uh, I basically like there had to be some sort of narrative that I was developing within the found footage. So like, as opposed to just showing something and saying, Hey, look at this amazing clip. Yeah. Using it as a, almost like a sentence in an essay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Through juxtaposing it with other clips, it's going to create a narrative about sure violence in America, but I don't think I've ever done <laughs> yeah, anything. Instead that. Of just kind of like a freak show of uh, clips, right. just kind of look how insane this stuff is like a, a mix of just wild shit. Yeah. That's fun to look yeah. at. You're using it more as like pastiche materials that you're going to build something with like a cut and paste essay or yeah, something. Cut but and paste essay is the right way to think of it because the early stuff, if it was more maybe cut and paste poetry or something, but <laughs> what, when, I, when I saw like what they were doing and other people, I, I, th- I sort of realized that since every, if everything is available, then you sh- then I should, as an artist, start thinking of everything as just like sentences or letters in an essay rather than about archiving, which is kind of what it was at the beginning. It was about disseminate archiving things that were being lost, like a bizarre, uh, you know, kids show from the early eighties that, that only, that was only on air for like one episode and then went straight to VHS and had all this Mm. psychedelic animation. Like there there's, that's one thing is to like take that and archive it and put segments of it online or in your art so that people can see it. It's another thing if all of that's already online and you then are approaching like ephemera from from a perspective that that doesn't need to be archived that you're basically then well what is it that i actually want to say by using each one of these little tiny clips and right because if everybody can find this stuff anyways if it's already available you have to do something else with it instead of just you can't only recontextualize yeah and also this idea of obscurity seemed to completely go away like this idea that like Uh a clip could even look bizarre to you uh, or look like strange. Like I remember early, like something like, I don't know if you ever saw Turkish star Wars, No, but it was, it's (laughs) like it was passed around on VHS tapes in the late nineties, early two thousands. It's basically literally like a Turkish company remaking star Wars, but it's so it's the aesthetic is so strange and it blew our minds when we saw it because we'd never seen anything like it. Um, that kind of mm. going into something blind feeling that you had, I think, pre-internet, pre-YouTube, I guess, sort of faded. And now nothing really surprises me aesthetically anymore. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I, I guess things do feel everything is a little bit. Nothing's things are just uncanny. They're not strange. Yeah. Like, I, I feel like maybe something's kind of strange, but I also feel like I've seen it before. Or, it's very difficult to see something that really as a whole, I'm completely baffled yeah, exactly. by or blown away by. Yeah. Huh. There's yeah. something about, I mean, one could argue that like, maybe that's like, I always think of these two different collectives as sort of emblematic of the shift paper ad being the first and like this magazine being this, the second collective, like post social media collective. Yeah. And if you think about like what we were doing versus what they were doing, it's sort of like on the one hand you have, paper ad being much more about this sort of like underground aesthetic that's surfacing online or something. Mm-hmm. And that is trying to retain some sense of, uh, if not authenticity, at least like some sense of like, I don't know, element of, of, a, an aesthetic that seems strange and bizarre and that it came from nowhere. And, and is, I don't know, it's like a clubhouse built out of trash, you know, yeah. but it's organic and it, and it was built uh, slowly over time by a group of small kids in new England versus, this magazine is like, okay, a complete embrace of like the corporate model or the, or the model of social media basically. And they're dealing much less with like this idea of authenticity or this idea of like a, uh, an aesthetic that is slowly developed over time under yeah. the radar. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, sense. like there's this different relationship between what's above ground and underground. And I think something like Turkish star Wars or a bizarre VHS tape that no one's ever seen could blow your mind because it was people working in isolation, making something. Yeah. And paper ad was like right there at that shift in between working in isolation versus working 
collectively on the internet, which I think DIS is only worked collectively on the internet. Like, I don't think there was any working isolation at that point. Yeah, yeah. And in a really matter-of-fact way, DIS is emblematic of when people talk about post-internet art. Right. I mean, that's what it's after the internet is ingrained in most aspects of everyday life to the point of banality. I mean, it just is what it is. So DIS is a product of that. Right. Where there's where there's not a lot, of, and they embraced it. I'm not. That's not a criticism. No, yeah. That's uh, they sort of operated with the understanding that most imagery and things were banal, right? And that kind of corporate culture subsumes everything. So to have a fucking field day with that. I exactly. guess exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whereas I think, I mean, the the vernacular internet of the late '90s and early 2000s uh, didn't seem banal to to me or us or and subculture didn't seem banal still it seemed like vibrant um sure i mean i don't know this is making painting it a little more black and white than i think it actually was at the time no but they're interesting distinctions i think and yeah. it's not i don't think it pits them against each other it's simply like it's yeah. contextual in terms of the time frame that they happen in but do you think about do you ever kind of zoom out and think about i mean you've mentioned several of paper rad's influences mm-hmm. do you yeah. sit around and get philosophical about how many young artists are influenced by paper ads aesthetic and methodology i mean even if it's not a one-to-one thing right i think so many people are influenced by someone who took their cues from paper rad if that makes yeah, sense yeah, like there's yeah. this kind of reverberation thing going on where stuff right right stuff reminds me of paper rad but i'm thinking this kid who's 21 I, I don't think they've ever looked at paper rad yeah um yeah well but there's somebody absolutely. in between like I, them and paper rad that they did look at it's one of those things <laughs> I, I always try and think of other examples to communicate to people that aren't involved in like internet culture or subculture uh because it's not like we made tons of money off of this or that we ever really have gotten that much celebrity status out of it so but it was i think simply like ahead of its time a little or something. And like, so now people repeat what we did or they do it in their own way. We simply were doing it a little bit before them or something. I don't know how else to describe it because like I said, it's not like I feel like we ever made a masterpiece that people can be like, Oh yeah, everything in this was stolen and used over and over again. It's more like just the vibe of it or something seems to have resonated in this way that it's almost like just using it's I think to simply put it's like using internet culture or popular culture as um source material in a kind of like hipster playful way rather than in a sardonic e- kind either of over, image generation overly academic yeah, pictures yeah so either sorry, like sorry. pictures generation on one hand or just like totally like uncritical on the other uh-huh. and it was like this space in between you know like yeah, yeah. Tim and Eric uh, adult swim, all this kind of like in, in between overly serious and overly funny is like this gray area that I think a lot of people work online. I mean, for me personally, my experience with finding paper ad or being shown paper ads website by like a peer in school, I remember that kind of over time I started to think of, oh, here's this like point in between my interest in these analog kind of yeah punk skater kind of things and this new distribution model that's the internet it was almost right. like i think those operating tendencies had always been something that in the groups of people that i hung out with were active yep. but it was the first time yep. that i think i saw it uh enacted in a way that kind of gave permission like hey someone someone jumped over the hurdle yeah totally so it almost like opened a floodgate and just said yeah yeah fuck around do all this stuff and this is like pre-tumblr yeah exactly too right so if someone was ahead of their time in in silicon valley they would have realized that they could have like monetized paper ad rather than reinventing it with tumblr and instagram and all these other things kids eventually learned how to use those in a in the same way that we were using HTML, yeah, you know, it, it took a little bit of time. It would have been interesting if like somebody had been like, oh, let's like literally pay paper ad to be the first like Tumblr celebrity pay. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, there was would... some sort of dumb collaboration. <laughs> it, clearly anybody who listens to this podcast and knows paper ad uh, can tell pretty 
obviously that my own sound work owes a lot to that influence uh-huh. um but yeah even more so i would say to another one of your collaborations which is with david whiteman and that's uh your band yep. extreme animals and i saw you guys did some shows this last fall in new york yep. um yep. for anybody listening like what kind of music is extreme animals just sonically wow yeah i mean it's evolved a lot over time me and david have been making music together since high school so i mean our first bands were like punk punk band, <laughs> punk band. <laughs> um and then we got we went to college and got into other stuff and by the time we started extreme animals it was i think we were trying to be like lightning bolt mixed with uh like uh like trance uh-huh. techno like really pandemic <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us are really good, actually. Well, we're not like, let's just say it was a really messy approach um, mm-hmm. and still is. So what's that's how it started. Because you guys aren't extreme a, animals. When people say band, you guys aren't a band right, in right. the sense that people probably yeah. what, they conjure in their head. We never, we've never practiced. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so David writes all of the, most of the songs on his laptop or on a, at the time it was on a, you know, like a MIDI keyboard and, Mm. and then we just play them live at the time there was no video, but now there's video being projected behind us. That's a huge part of it. Like now we think of the video as like the lead singer. So me and David are like creating a vibe for the video. So, yeah, it evolved from that style, which actually Juicebox calls Rainbow Rock. And there's Rainbow. another podcast. <laughs> Maybe we can forward people to this podcast. Yeah, yeah. The Craft it? of Blank, and then they'll do The Craft of Rainbow is Rock it or The Craft conversations? of Something Else. Yes. Juicebox is interviewed on there, and he does a whole episode about what he calls Rainbow Rock, which is right before it, everything blew up. So, like, right before Dan Deacon or something, uh-huh. you know, who is another person that was influenced by providence and paper rad that kind of figured out how to distill it in this way and make it much more uh user friendly <laughs> for lack of a better word yeah um normie accessible yeah like just better too more popular sure extreme animals kind of evolved out of rainbow rock and now we david's always been into metal and guitars so now there's this like metal element that's sort of the angsty component mm-hmm. uh mixed with me trying to kind of figure out what's happening in popular american culture online either within video yeah mostly within videos but yeah kind of creating these video essays that go along with david's angsty metal guitar electronic music soundtracks which I'll, they're like half metal half like happy hardcore or it's something you know, like that do you know gent like that kind of music yeah it's like yeah you guys were doing that before that was like a youtube phenomenon yeah i feel like and now yeah. that's like a <laughs> yeah it's very niche it's very it's... very niche like i think the amount of people that might actually enjoy listening to it are like five to ten <laughs> people five to ten yeah or age five to ten <laughs> oh oh I got to, I interviewed uh, you and David like five years ago for Vice. um, And you told me that, but your first musical collaboration was you guys were in an acapella group together in high school. Yeah. That's cool. Yes, totally. That's very exciting. Absolutely. The the band was called, the group was called the Acapellas. Yeah, um, (laughs) of course. And they were, you know, I I hadn't gone through puberty yet. So I was singing like high. Yeah. Uh, boys choir style treble and david yes he had gone through puberty and Good his voice him. was really low so he was <laughs> he was <laughs> he was a bass and um we were the two kids that had like long hair like weird long indie rock hair uh, in the were you guys trying to get them I to think do acapella arrangements of we, pavement or something no that's really good i mean we would have like we were that dorky that we wouldn't have known figured out that that's not a good <laughs> 
like <laughs> thing to cross over, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like he, he was in all these other bands at the same time that he was in Acafellas. And I was always like amazed that he could do both, you know, that you could be both cool in one sense and also just do the dorkiest thing. And which again, you know, back to paper ad, back to extreme animals, there's <laughs> that, uh, that a sensibility of like trying to be both, uncool and cool at the same time yeah you know yeah or trying to take things that have been really really not cool and turn them into cool underground culture you know like nerd html like art was not cool but you could you could figure out a, a way to make it cool and that's sort of like you said earlier that's something that keeps happening online like people are doing that every week now like figuring out how to take something from one context of culture somehow wrap it into something that makes it i don't know i guess like i'm thinking of like the floss dance or something mm. do you know what i mean yeah. you know that dance that little like there's something super nerdy about that <laughs> and that backpack kid period you know transcended that nerdiness entered into subculture popular culture and is now nerdy again but you know there's like this blur or this fade where, where things are really, really exciting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, wait, is this cool or not cool? I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking to that, you did a post, uh, a blog post recently, sort of recently, uh, that right. you said that you're trying to make things about people's emotional responses to technology and popular culture. And I liked that. Yes. as this very simple, yes. very transparent kind of artist pseudo statement. And later, yeah, absolutely. later on in that same post, you mentioned this, height of kids consumer culture in the late 80s early 90s and how formative yeah. that was for you and and there's this one part where you talk about being really stressed out as a kid thinking that you were going to get sucked up into this black hole because you were like rotting your yeah. brain with cartoons right, and other right. things but then something happened where you started to perceive it as this endless maze of the weird um right and you later right. started to be uh, as you got older it seemed like that made sense that you became attracted to the aesthetics of uh fort thunder and providence right um, right what about exactly fort thunder yeah. was captivating for you what's this jump between like a little kid freaking yeah. out about all these things and then this kind of radical yeah. collective venue place in providence well i remember someone recently said that they were referred to fort thunder was referred to as like the Peter Pan boys in Providence by other people in the community. I meaning like that. they were the, <laughs> the kid, the kids that never grew yeah. up and they'd built this like playhouse out of trash that allowed them to stay 10 year olds all the way into their late twenties. So for me, it was, it was that popular culture, kids culture was incredibly a rich, it was an incredibly rich part of my like, creative mental even spiritual space when i was like five all the way to 12 when it got beat out of me and i became a teenager mm. or whatever but when you start wearing about those, what's cool yeah for that for that seven years it was like very like you know drawing all the time right uh drawing all the time uh thinking imagining all the time like building utopias in my mind you know and then all of that's lost or it stops and you get into being what finding what's cool. And I was never really that great at skating. It wasn't really that good at like being in a rock band or whatever, like being cool in that way. And so then I, you know, show up in, in Boston or, or see this stuff, uh, the P Fort Thunder Providence people are working on. It and it seems like a return to that layer that I knew so much about, like Dungeons and Dragons, fantasy art, all these things that I knew a ton about and that was actually good at. Mm. So I was like, Oh, this is a subculture that I can actually do. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, this is something that I'm an expert in as well. And, and the way they were doing it was like, you know, I don't know, pretty open, pretty free and inclusive. And so I don't know, I just gravitated towards that model of like, Oh, and then also back to the essay that you're talking about, like there's this terrifying quality to like D&D, He-Man, uh, things that seem yeah, occult, sure. things that seem scary, or any any pop culture that's just so overwhelming. It's like candy that if you eat too much of mm -hmm. it, your brain's going to fry. The Gremlins is, you know, I mean, there's so many examples, but <laughs> uh, that kind of trash culture, you know, it imprinted in my mind so strongly when I was little. And then... I felt like when I saw Fort Thunder and Deer Raindrops art, 
all of that culture was coming back to me in in this way that felt like alive again you know uh, mm-hmm. and and not in sort of just like a retro alive way but actually like oh they're creating a whole new universe out of these things that i'm familiar with you know like a cargo cult or something yeah that art is a space for that where skateboarding or punk bands or whatever kind of uh maybe they can kind of make you feel disenfranchised actually even though you're interested in them if you're not good at the thing and then ironically yeah art which i guess not ironically because that's what we pretend like art does but it's always interesting to actually hear when it does do that when a group of kind yeah, of misfits yeah. use art and do something they're kind of like this is what connects all the dots because i don't know exactly <laughs> and i think you hit the nail on the head is that it's it's kind of rare that that happens that art can be something that is actually bridging the gaps rather than pushing the pushing people into further and further little categories which i feel like art often does yeah sometimes it can push everybody together, you know, yeah. maybe paper ad Fort Thunder, other things in history do that. It was like combine things that needed to be combined in order to give more access to, or allow people to see them differently. No, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's kind of, well, what you're, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I'm imagining what you're describing is this kind of like, people can't see what I'm doing with my hand, but this kind of like yeah. wavelength of, from being a little kid, being into stuff, being a teen and kind of being like boxed out of, being interested in certain things and you get into like your, you know, young adulthood and you discover something like this and it's incredible and you have this jostle like when you're a kid again, but then the art world kind of says like, fuck you, don't do those things. Then you have to go back and like yeah. in your thirties or late twenties, you have to become a teen again, but in the art world where like right, nothing's right. cool and you have to like yeah. be guarded all the time. It yeah. sucks. Wow. Oh, things, well. things get even <laughs> harder when you enter into your late thirties, early, early forties. <laughs> um, well, <laughs> yeah, we've talked about a couple of your collaborative projects here, um, but yeah. outside of extreme animals, which I know is uh, taking up some of your time because you guys are working on new stuff, but, what's driving your what's driving your individual practice presently like what are you interested in when you're not working with other people god it's weird i feel like i only work with other people and (laughs) it's been that way for a long time no i mean i do i I work on these paintings that have this animated component to them and then they end up in extreme animals videos um but the paintings start really solitary that's that's one thing uh and that's going to be impossible to describe on a podcast but they are just similar to maybe the videos or the music that you're going to play or, or that we might yeah, yeah. play in the podcast, except paint the painted version. I don't know. <laughs> I, I literally have, I don't want to like, I have no idea how to describe a painting over, That's over a podcast. Put a picture of one. So there's a, yeah. <laughs> in the... I got really into craft beer over the last uh, couple of years. because uh, you're old. Yeah. Cause I'm old and I have a job. <laughs> so. And you're dead. But, shit yeah <laughs> exactly but it's actually i wrote an essay about it and it's it's to me for me it, it fits in with all the stuff we're talking about about like these different cultures that you're locked out of because you don't feel cool enough uh-huh. uh but that you're still super interested in and trying to find a space uh you know that the fact that you're not cool enough makes it even more desirable to be a part of it okay. that's happening in with beer i don't know if you drink beer but that's been happening in beer for a decade probably at least and and now it's got it's reached a fever pitch so <laughs> you did a label uh, for a beer right yeah yeah that's sort of just a joke or a, just a a statement essay whatever you want to call okay. it about this uh collector mentality that starts when you're a little kid with um oh, yeah i don't know uh, action figures uh-huh. moves into comics then goes into underground music and ends up with craft beer and yeah, and ends yeah, up it's like it's like <laughs> yeah people have that, i don't like, know untapped app like i have guys yeah, that i know yeah. from high school who i like i don't think i follow them any longer on like 
Twitter or something, but they were like doing cross post, you know, if this, then that kind of post right. or something. And the only yeah. thing that they ever did was like when they would unlock a new craft beer or something, and they were collecting basically yes. like personal points for how many different yes. things they'd gotten access to or tried. And it, it, it's very much, yeah, it's like collecting comic cards or something. Like, yeah, yeah. it's huh. deep. It's very similar. <laughs> it, it's, it's the, they figured out a way to make craft beer like really scarce too, which is that there's this style that's, so scare like artificial scarcity yeah. is what I'm thinking of. You know, same way that baseball cards and magic cards all have yeah. that. Any collector thing has to have scarcity. Like yeah, because logic would dictate you know, if, if this beer is popular, they should produce it on a mass scale. But that's actually not in their interest yes. to do. No, huh. and they 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 have a good reason to do that now, which is that this beer that they're making only tastes good when it's really really fresh. Huh. So it it can't be shipped across the country right. because. It only tastes good if you get it from the beer um, poured correctly. You know, from all the, the things, yeah. There's all these, yeah, factors. like right away. So, so they've created both something that tastes re- really delicious because it's so fresh, and it's highly collectible because it's you can only get it the day it's released. Yeah, and the aesthetics are like ramped up a thousand times yeah, from what yeah. beer was when I was a kid. Exactly, like it's ter- t- changed obviously from like working class beverage into like, I don't know, idiots like me are making art for, for free for these companies. <laughs> <laughs> My friend Ezekwe Muhammad made, uh, he made a, a limited beer release with this brewery in, in New York that was like part of one of his shows yeah. or something. And it was really, it was pretty cool actually that he did. Yeah, it. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this company that I worked with here, uh, Mars, M-A-R-Z Brewing, is somebody I've known in the DIY scene for like over a decade. Um, and he's transitioned into doing food and beer in addition to all of his other DIY spaces and galleries and other projects, print, radio. But yeah, so he collaborates with artists all the time. Like he did a Bad at Sports beer. Oh, I know you know Bad yeah, at Sports. Yeah, yeah, I know Duncan and that crew. Yeah. Really yeah, well. he did a beer for them he's done beers for like many many chicago art collaborations huh. it's almost yeah it's strange we've entered a strange paradigm for 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 like <laughs> art art culture that <laughs> just basically beer label designers now <laughs> one of the last things that i wanted to ask you about was maybe it's kind of related to yeah. this collecting but a little bit more abstractly and that is uh in the rhizome interview that i mentioned earlier you yeah you said this thing you articulated something that i've always felt but i had never really spent the time to kind of try to flesh out in my mind but you were talking about this the pain of archiving work oh yeah as like a especially as a digital artist um, or somebody whose work is primarily uh, exists in long form and digital documentation. And um, you likened it to going through letters or ephemera from an old relationship and how that's kind of this painful thing. And I mean, it was, it was just, it was strange. I was going through uh, an old hard drive the other day um, Mm -hmm. and I found, cause I was trying to find this video of this performance I did in like, I don't know, seven or eight years ago. Um, and I and I found it and I and I watched it and on uh one hand it was extremely fun to revisit it and I was just like kinda laughing, you yeah. know, and uh it was cool to see Well, you, you've got good self esteem well, is all I can I say. I was kinda like <laughs> seeing people in the audience that I'd lost touch with and stuff like that. But on the other hand, yeah. it like it kinda like stung. Um and oh yeah. I just I physically I was like watching myself and I was like, God, I was so much more energetic. Was I more oh, was yeah. I more There's productive that. then? Yeah. Was I more naive yep. in a good way? Um, yes, yes, and I, yes, all and of that. That has happened every time that I've tried to go through and and really organize things, and it's right. It's really strange, and I never. Uh, I just hadn't heard it compared to this kind of like going through the shoebox of like an old relationship, yeah. and it yeah. so is. And I was just like, I just wanted to say that I, I felt like you really nailed it with that description. Well, there's also <laughs> there's everything you said, which is like just oh, am I a worse artist now? There's that, <laughs> but then there's also on top of it like so many things that would that no one can currently see, uh, and and the question of whether it's good enough to try and adapt it to the to technology that's viewable like if the today. file is no longer if you can't use it on yeah. x y or z or if it's a painting that no one's ever seen mm-hmm. like i mean i think the equivalent for a painter that's a serious painter is that they have to decide when because you can't store every painting i, I just can't imagine you'd have enough space unless you're like 
successful to store every painting. So if you're not a successful painter, I'm sure it's very painful to decide what you're going to toss when you, when you're going to toss something, it sucks to just give things away because then you're just basically like, unless it's a special person that you know is actually going to enjoy it. If you're just going to be giving something away, like that's never been shown. There's this, I don't know. My ego says there's a sense of like, well, I spent so much time and energy on this and I wanted the world to see it. Even if it's just being shown in a coffee shop, at least that's my version of the world at that moment. And if it's never been shown, never been documented, then why did I spend six months on it? You know, that's a, that's brutal with painting, I'm sure, but it's equally, if not more brutal with like a video that, you know, or something that's like 80% done on a hard drive. That's, that's, or like you said, like a performance that's never been uh, archived correctly. on like, I have so many performances that I've done that I don't know at the time I thought they were amazing, but like now when I watch the documentation, I'm like, okay, this actually a is not that incredible, <laughs> but B to get it to a place where it looks incredible for my website or for yeah. posterity it's going to take a lot of work. And do I have that in me yeah. or is it more, more in my interest to try and make something new and just forget about that? Because I only have 30 minutes because my baby's going to start crying <laughs> after that. You know? So like, you know, what do I do with this 30 minutes? Do I archive something that's painful to archive or do I try and make something new with the knowledge that that's probably also going to enter that like dustbin in 10 years? Yeah. God, it's, I've just been like hung up on it since I reread that rhizome interview. And I have this, I have like this Mac, a PowerBook G4, like 17 inch. I I bought it off a guy in school in 2007 and it's like trashed. I mean, I don't have the power cable for it. I don't have, but I I have brought it with me on like six moves and I brought it from Brooklyn to Austin, Texas. And I, have I mean I know I can just take it to somebody and they can extract the hard drive and maybe I can get some of the data. I mean yep. I, I'm sure the files are fine or something, but I yep. I've just been caring because I'm like oh there's a couple old things on there that I really want to. Yeah. I just want to get or something, but I, I kind of also think like, do I want to look at a performance I did in 2008 when I was in grad school? Like, right, it's right, right, probably right. it's gonna hurt in yeah. like a lot it of might, ways. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, it's also like this thing of like, I think there's many, many scenes in like movies where like the old character is like, you know, used to be a famous musician or artist and hasn't played the guitar in like over three decades. And I'm always like, I, when I was younger, I was always like, what's their problem? What's their big hangup? Just go pick up the guitar. It's not that hard. It's going to be fun. You're going to learn that you love music again. Mm -hmm. What's the big, why are you so such a melancholy old drunk, you know, (laughs) and it's, it's because of, I think it's because creativity starts to symbolize, you know, so much, uh, so many other things beyond just the act of jamming or whatever Mm -hmm. your thing is that you do. And like there, the older you get, the more you're like burdened with, well, you have to hopefully not be burdened with, but you could be burdened with all of the sort of like, failures that all of these <laughs> things represent you uh-huh. know like because i think any good artist is incredibly hard on themselves let's be honest yeah. right like so so you're gonna see most of like you're gonna see mostly failure if you're a good artist because that's what pushes you to keep going is that you're never good enough i mean unfortunately you know i think there are some really well-adjusted artists out there like jeff coon seems like a pretty like he seems like he's happy or something, yeah. but most of the artists <laughs> that I know, the reason they're artists is because they're never satisfied with anything. And the, uh-huh. and you know, they're pushing It's a, it's a wild thing to, to want to like always push yourself when no one's telling you to, yeah. to do this thing that, you know, literally five people care about. So like there has to be some sort of like, screw missing you know yeah to, yeah. to want to do that and to reflect back on it when you have a different perspective in terms of what the reach of something was like yes yes i guess maybe that's maybe that's part of looking at old performances is like i spent months on them and worked so hard and like really thought this was going to be a big deal because it was in a different city than i lived in and i was like this yeah. is it i'm working my way up or something and then you look back and i'm like right I mean, I thought it was, I was like, I can't believe how many people came and you look back on it. It's like, there's 30 people at that, man. Like, and they don't, yeah. half of them 
don't didn't know my name at it and I clearly yeah, I never remembered it. <laughs> it's kind of- yeah. And there's also this thing with like subculture and like I was thinking about this the other day with like performance music, whatever it is. At the end of the day, often you're just like wallpaper for people to have a good night so they can go home and make out with their date that night. <laughs> yeah. I always call it the uh, if you're doing performance art at a gallery, you're all, you're just entertainment at dinner. Yeah. Like you just kind of, you're the thing that right. moves so that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. Like, you know, rarely someone is like, wow, that was fucking incredible. You blew my mind. Mm. I'm never going to be the same person again. <laughs> but, but like, even at the height of Paperette, which was like performing at the MoMA or whatever for like all these people, uh-huh. it was just like, a, it was like a blip in these people's lives. Sure. You know? Yeah. It was just like, oh, let's go pretend like we're a part of the Rainbow Rock movement mm. for a night, and then we'll go get jobs at Facebook, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Well, I guess that's that <laughs> that's that weird the compulsion though to keep to keep doing it anyways. That's what that's what yeah, makes it. I'm never stopping. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will now that I especially now that I've come out publicly and said that, I can't stop. Yeah, if you well, yeah, you'd be a You'd, hypocrite. you'd be a real hypocrite. That's the yeah. worst thing. Yeah. Don't be that. You got to stand behind your words. <laughs> well, um, Jacob, thank you so much for spending yeah. some time. Clearly, you uh, are very busy these days. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been really fun to talk. Let's keep people, uh, keep on your radar, people out there, new extreme animals things some point in the future here. We don't have a specific yeah. date, I don't think, but I, uh, nope. I think you're going to want to keep an eye out for that stuff. So, Jacob, thank you so much. Yeah. And to everybody out there listening, we'll catch you next week. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.